Welcome back to Powered by Play. This time on Powered by Play, we're discussing what does it mean to play as Americans? Who are we as a nation? And how does it define the ways that we play? How does our play reflect both a coherent national identity and regional or community identities? And what is our history with play and how does it relate to the American dream? Or the American reality? Okay, Avery, press play. So even though we have discussed that play itself originates in creatures of all kinds from way before humans were a thing, in Western culture, we have a very Puritan idea of play, which is very formed around the basis of mistrust. And there's this Western bias against play that historically from Plato to the Puritans, as I'm quoting now from one of our favorite textbooks, Performance Studies by Richard Schechner. From Plato to the Puritans, the playful has been considered frivolous, unimportant, and even sinful. Playing is a major distraction, tempting people away from work, which is the quote-unquote real business of living, end quote. And this can be symbolized by a child-slash-adult divide within play, whereas play is for children and work is for adults, and neither the two shall mix the betweens, whatever that saying is. Um, it can be represented, represented through things such as red light districts, which are very, uh, it's an imagery of risky sexual and subversive behavior because the color red psychologically resonates with the emotion or the action of stop and the feeling of hot. Like red is hot, so don't touch it, go far away from it, it's dangerous. And we have a cultural presence of binge to confession cycle of culture, for example, with Mardi Gras, like big party and then Ash Wednesday, um, confess all your sins and never speak of this again. In red light districts, um, they're known to have con artists, sex workers, actors, and musicians, which is funny because the theater actually used to be considered quite a sinful, frivolous, risque partaking in the back in the days. That wasn't even English. <laughs> Another quote from the book is that uh, responding to America's New York's Broadway near Times Square is that commencing in the early 1990s, Times Square and West 42nd Street were transformed from a quote-unquote adults-only district into a quote-unquote family-oriented neighborhood dominated by Disney, MGM, the Ford Motor Company, and other mega-corporations. So it wasn't until more recently that even theater has become just family-friendly and not very limited just to adults and such. So what would you say, Drew, are some key words for America? What makes this country unique in the story, the art, and the play? Yeah, I think, and a lot of this is how we define ourselves to ourselves, right? The, the words that we want to attach to ourselves as a society, the words that we put in things like the preamble to the Constitution or the Pledge of Allegiance, who we want to be. And I'm thinking of key words like freedom. I'm thinking of key words like justice. And the idea especially of hard work or industry, 
that hard work will equal success. I think that in general, besides those keywords, I think America has the sense of itself as a golden gate to immigration, the shining light of liberty, welcoming all, and a culture that draws pieces from many, many different cultures. Sometimes I think those are manufactured. If you look at something like the Disney Park's Main Streets and try to understand what they are referencing, the time period and the culture that they're trying to recreate, or Hollywood and how Hollywood creates an image of America. Or, uh, by the way, Avery, seen very specifically in the Barbie movie recently. It was kind of fascinating how the Barbies came to what was the real world in LA, in Hollywood, and where the Mattel Corporation was, and that was sort of, oh, this is America, but this is the real world. Things also like Civil War reenactments or other reenactments, uh, Latter-day Saints pageants, other things like that that are sort of, we are recreating our history in the way that we prefer to remember it. And then I wrote a whole bunch of things down here that related to sort of America, like car culture, Thanksgiving, the idea of the Wild West with Indians and cowboys, in quotes, guns, some specifically American performance forms like jazz or musical theater, rock and roll, rap, hip hop, and then sports, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. American sports, baseball, the great American pastime, American football, and basketball. So when I think of the keywords, those are kind of what I go to. What do you think? Yeah, we have a lot to discuss today for sure. Definitely with American football reminds me, of course, of Ted Lasso, which I've been watching through mostly. I'm almost to the end of the last season now. It's really exciting. And me too, Avery. <laughs> Uh, I know. It's gotten me to learn so much about sports, which I never really cared about ever growing up. And the fact that an American football coach goes to the UK to coach soccer or, you know, AKA football in the rest of the world, that single blurb of a description was enough to propel me to just watch this entire thing because it's a very unexpected idea and definitely there's there's also a lot in there too about american culture versus the rest of the world and ted just represents a lot of things about play and fun but also kindness and unexpected humanization of other people but i think my keyword for america for this episode is deep fried butter on a stick now I know that's oh wow it's multiple words but that is my keyword uh, so I came to this research topic yes deep fried butter on a stick is a research topic argue with me on that um, because I for this episode I was researching the Illinois State Fair which I attended recently and I was digging more into where did state fairs come from in America and the existence of the agricultural fair and county fairs and such and such and such like that. And I stumbled across um, the Iowa State Fair where, okay, well, backtracking before the Iowa State Fair's event, this 
man named Abel Gonzalez Jr., aka Fried Jesus of Dallas, of Dallas, Texas. In 2009, he debuted/slash invented deep fried butter at the State Fair of Texas. And this uses frozen battered butter, and you basically coat it in a coating, you fry it, and it was awarded the most creative food prize during that time. And and then, late years later at the Iowa State Fair, it became on a stick. And the only thing more American than deep fried butter is deep fried butter on a stick. <laughs> yep, I can see that. Yeah, and I read this quote from this article um, by Barbara J. Rolls. I think uh, she's a specialist in eating behavior and obesity because, of course, you know, people had to report on this event and they had to ask questions of like, why would people care to eat such a high cholesterol, high fat, regular mostly unhealthy food item and just go ham over this and so she says we're stressed out and want to reward ourselves and we think of it as a treat trying to get people concerned about what's going to happen to them down the road when often they don't know where their next paycheck is come is going to come from is a really hard sell right now and another fun fact about the iowa state fair from 1911 to 1950 they had the healthiest baby contest which has a slightly dark history slash perspective coming from the eugenics side of things. And you see this a lot at a lot of agricultural fairs. Um, so agricultural fair is kind of the global term for it. In the U.S., they're mostly known as state fairs and county fairs. They have been around since the 19th century. They're an opportunity for the public to celebrate achievements and to break from their daily routine and also to promote state agriculture. And so a large part of these fairs is for some sort of competition. So healthiest baby, healthiest cow, largest cow, yummiest pig, not yummiest, biggest pig, youngest pig, you know, coolest color pig, biggest pumpkin. You know, and farm products like biggest squash and most important corn and stuff like that. Uh, Drew, if you were to have a farm product that you would champion at your local state fair, what would it be? I think it would be most savory salad. Ooh. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that you get your greens in there and then you get some protein um, you get some good teriyaki chicken in there, or you get some elote corn. I think that would be pretty Aww, fantastic. That's pretty nice. I would probably want to go with happiest horse. Oh, that's awesome. So back when the economy was mostly agriculturally focused, um, naturally, people would want to be able to celebrate their achievements during a break from their daily routines of being farmers and such. So this competition was an opportunity for them to show off and to celebrate themselves and also have a little bit of fun. There would be some light entertainment uh, that would grow in quantity over the years and decades. So after the agrarian economy, there would be an industrial economy in the 20th century with machinery and cars and such. And then in the 21st century would be focused more on a service economy where 
people not necessarily of the farm working capacity would still come to county fairs to still enjoy and have entertainment. So nowadays you would see carnival amusement rides and games. Whereas in the industrial age, maybe there would be industrial products like machinery and, ooh, a really cool farming hoeing device that waters 20,000 plants at once. Um, and you would also still see automobile racing and music as well. And there would, even, even on top of that, there would even be art, including butter sculptures, because that's a wonderful part of these county fairs as well. And that's also part of the reason why that I tried to go to the Springfield or the Illinois State Fair to see the butter sculpture this year. But I think I ended up going at night and, and bef the day before the butter sculpture was open. So I actually did not see it. But that just means that I'll come back next time to see that guy. Okay, so I have to ask, how do they keep the butter sculpture from melting? The earliest documented butter sculpture dates from Europe in 1536, where they were used on banquet tables. Here's Wikipedia. Apparently, the history of carving food into sculptures is ancient. So ar archaeologists would find bread and putting molds of animal and human shapes. Um, okay, the heyday of butter sculpting was from about 1890 to 1930, during which uh, the American dairy industry had refrigeration become widely available. So I think due to refrigeration, that's been a very helpful thing for butter. Hey, very nice. Yeah. Have you had good experiences at state fairs? I have. I remember as a kid, the primary thing that I wanted to see was the animals. And I think here, Avery, we have like the kind of rural and urban suburban divide because I had not seen animals like sheep, goats, cows, chickens, and... I would go to the state fair and would just watch them and I found them fascinating. And I think that there, there is kind of a, there's a different smell in the areas where the animals are. And when I was a kid, I, I think I felt like, oh, okay, well, that's like the smell of a farm. And there were some kids who would go, ew, and cover their noses and stuff like that. But I, it didn't bother me too much, except for the one time that my family and I went to a dairy farm. That was another story. That was kind of overpowering. But state fairs loved the animals. And the rides, I think more than the rides that went around and around and around, it was the, um, the fun houses. I loved kind of exploring the fun houses. Most of the time people would be like, oh, I'm gonna try to get through this as quickly as possible. But I wanted to check out like, what is this mirror doing to me? And what is this character here? And Avery, I did attend the Orange County Fair here in Southern California this year. And here's something that I had never seen before, but I thought this was riveting. And that was a competition for table settings and a competition for design of a menu, table settings, decorations, and I, it, it absolutely blew me away. So there was one, for example, that was a competition to see who could match a Disney theme the best. So you had, you had Beauty and the Beast with French food and the rose in the bell jar in the center of the table. You had Ariel 
and then the Little Mermaid, all that stuff, and with pearls on the plates and things. But then you had other things where they wanted you to, their, their brief to the people who were designing these was take a trip through history. And so there was an Egypt one, and there was a futuristic one. And I, I, I re, Avery, I need to send you some photos that I took of these tables because they were pretty fantastic. I think this is now my favorite thing at the fair, and I'm going to go back and see this year after year. So there you go. That's freaking amazing. I remember my favorite part growing up of the Orange County Fair was the art areas because they had huge art and crabby sections where crochet artists and yarn artists would have these huge displays and there would be that whole woodworking display area. So picture a canvas hanging on your wall, but instead of a canvas, it's wood and it has been cut and carved to be a horse. It looks so majestic and almost painterly, but it's made out of wood. I don't know. It's... I was, I've always been really, really impressed to see all those sections there, too. Yeah, and that's another sort of demystifying, like demystifying farm animals. You get to demystify woodcarvers and weavers and the other folks who are doing agricultural or rural kinds of, or cottage industries. So, yeah, I, I agree. The woodworkers are still there, by the way, and they are, again, pretty fantastic. There was a beautiful chessboard that they had made that was on display. Wow, I'm drooling. That part of the county fair is very educational, and it's almost very museum-like, too. I think even the fact of how you described that you've, you'd never seen animals before, the, the smell of the animals, too, is another very like poignant part of it. I saw so many cows at the Illinois State Fair. Okay, so I'm also, I'm a Southern California person, and we don't have cows everywhere. The most important parts that cows play in our lives is when we're driving to NorCal and we pass by all the farmlands oh, yeah. and we shout a cow when we pass by a cow so that everybody knows to look at the cows and then move on with our lives. So my partner and I, our goal was to see a monster truck show at the Illinois State Fair. And while we were walking, you know, toward the arena where that was supposed to happen, we would see people walking their cows around and the cows were so fluffy and they were so happy looking and they were so cute. And they were just like, I'm a cow, I'm a cow. I don't know. I freaked out. I was so happy when I saw them just like walking along because they were, I just thought they were adorable. So speaking of the monster truck show, have you ever seen one before? Not live. Ah, I see. I've, I've seen plenty of videos and plenty of filmed versions, but no, not live. How was it? I see. It was really exciting. These ginormous trucks have wheels that are like six feet high, which is much bigger than me. I'm about four foot 11, so naturally, I don't even know what I would do if I were standing next to a monster truck because I would probably be able to reach my arms all the way up and like barely reach the top, not even. Yeah, you and I would both need grappling hooks. <laughs> exactly. They had a lot of thrilling moments, but only when there was tipping involved, there was high speed, leaping, and narrowly missed obstacles. 
everything other than that was just like the cars waiting to get into the starting line or just revving their engines and stuff and the noise it was really really loud a lot of kids had hearing protection which was a very good idea i forgot to bring mine and it definitely smelled of straight up gasoline and the dirt and you could smell some of the farm smell coming in from the other side so it was just a bunch of different smells and scents and stuff i've only seen monster trucks once also at the orange county fair actually uh, back when i was a kid and it didn't take me long to really get into it it was very easy to feel your heart leap with these trucks and leap into the air with them and follow them on their journey emotionally. I was also, I'm a very jumpy person as well. So whenever there was a loud engine startup noise or um, a huge change in my expectations, I would definitely just like flinch with my whole body and just like, ah, just be very exasperated. But I think that was part of the fun. And I also found myself just instinctually like, and hollering with the rest of the crowd as well and we didn't attend any of the other days of the fair but uh, according to their events page they also had um, other events such as a rodeo event with like bareback riding bronx and bulls they also had truck and tractor pulls as well as a demolition derby and i have been to a demolition derby uh, in Champaign, so I did experience that for my first time. I moved to the Midwest, and now I have all these new things to talk about. I'm, it's, it's exciting. Um, but yeah, I'm listing all of these different sports, including the monster trucks, because actually upon further research, it turns out that they all kind of started in the United States or in North America. With rodeo, you know, that one has roots in Spain and Mexico and all of the Americas, um, but it's the official state sport of Wyoming, South Dakota, and Texas. And the concept of rodeo very conceptualizes, or it calls to mind the idea of working cowboys in the American West and how that kind of is ingrained into our American culture. And with the story of monster trucks, I was very impressed when I looked into the history of it more. Um, one of the guys that I read about, Bob Chandler, he founded one of the most iconic monster trucks. It's the star of a lot of the 80s and onward monster truck um, kind of TV shows and extravaganzas. And it basically started out, to, to paraphrase the whole monster truck hobby, he basically put giant wheels on his truck, and then he was like, well, I want to put bigger wheels on my truck. And he was just basically trying to put the biggest wheels onto his truck that he could. And then if he wanted bigger wheels, he would need a bigger engine. If he wanted bigger engine, he got bigger axles and like all of that. So just like upgrading the whole, the whole freaking rig of the monster truck until it was able to crush a few cars underneath it. And basically when the first crowds saw him basically him drive the truck onto a couple other cars the crowd just went wild and it was a very natural reaction to just want to keep gaining more and keep growing more and i think that's a very american sport a very american philosophy of oh i have to make the biggest truck no i have to make the biggest truck and like competing with other people to also do that as well i think this is kind of leading us into some of the points we'll probably make at the end about things like competition and excess and performativity 
And I'm hearing a lot of, this is my American dream. My American dream is to do something that is bigger, wilder, or it could be prettier, like the table settings, or it could be uh, more useful, like the farm animals. And I, there's a lot of it. I, I kind of started off by saying the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, and especially in a place where we all come from different places. And so to share something I can see a lot of these threads converging into kind of where we're going with this at the end. Yeah, you're definitely a master of being able to extrapolate thematic threads from all of these loose threads that I'm tossing around. But Avery, they're all amazing loose threads. Yeah. And that's, okay, shall we, shall we hit a metaphor here? That's what loose threads do. They create a tapestry. They create something, all those loose threads... They're not sitting side by side naturally. They are woven together. And so they end up being next to each other and creating something that is both useful and beautiful. But they don't start out together. They, ha they literally have to be attached to each other. There you go. Metaphor of the day. Thank you very much. That was beautiful. Absolutely. Anytime, Avery. And did you go on any rides? I did not go on any rides. We mostly just walked past okay. them. I'm not a very big fan of carnival rides. The One of the rides that I saw at the Illinois State Fair was a tilt-a-whirl. It was, it was just like it goes around in a circle, but it also goes up and down a little bit. And you sit in this little... Um, hubby i guess and it was an american themed one it had like flag symbology around the sides and i think the sign on it said america's favorite total world or something like that very american but literally just because of the symbology i don't really know what else made it american but maybe that's it maybe a flag is enough to make something american themed it seems like it I, it's immediately recognizable and understandable and something that has meaning to a lot of people, different meanings to different people, but yeah, they would, okay, I'm going to feel like an American because I'm going to get on this ride and I'm going to be here with the flag. Maybe the flag is all around me and I'm just going to feel in that moment like America is spinning me around and around and around. That's a really good advertisement statement for that ride. There you go. Chill to whirl. Yeah. Look me up. Okay. And should we uh, talk about sports a little bit? Yeah. Let's do that. For this set for this episode, I did some research into fantasy football. And I talked to a few of my friends. And I looked up the history, and I looked at several sites where people play. I looked at several news articles about it, and I got some really interesting information. And first of all, for a little history, it began in the 1960s in Oakland, California. And the most popular fantasy sport is fantasy football, but there are other sports. One of my friends plays fantasy tennis, for example, 
The idea is that you build your own team, regardless of what players' affiliations are in real life or what their actual salaries are. So you draft a team, and it has you have a, a certain number. You have a quarterback, you have running backs, and et cetera, et cetera. And you store this draft on a fantasy football database. And essentially what happens is when football games like real world, I guess we could say real world, when real world games are happening, essentially your team is playing a game of points. Fantasy football is really all about math and statistics. So players, your players get points your fantasy team gets points for things that are occurring in the real world. Also, they're getting points for things that would not score points in a real game, like how many yards did they get? That's going to score you points or other things like that. As well as, of course, touchdowns and extra points and field goals and other things that actually do count for points in the real world. So fantasy football takes up most of Sunday because players have to watch team after team after team to see what their individual players are doing. So my friend described playing fantasy football as kind of a competitive euphoria. And I love this term, competitive euphoria. The idea that you are competing and you watch these players the constant ups and downs are almost like, to go back to the carnival rides, almost like a roller coaster where you feel what's happening. Some fantasy football players are in it, and they're usually called managers. Some managers are in it for the money, but many want to learn more about their players and more about the sport in general. And one of my friends that I talked to talked about at some point he had to step away from a couple of the leagues he was in. It was starting to become too consuming. He was losing time with his family. Now he's got a better balance and his daughter is actually old enough to be interested in fantasy football. And so on Sundays, she'll ask him how his team is doing and what's happening and things like that. Here's another interesting thing. I had no idea that this was happening, Avery, but about four-fifths of NFL players play fantasy football. And they actually comment <laughs> on both sports, the real-world games and the fantasy football games. And I found this amazing quote from the great Peyton Manning. So Peyton Manning was... Uh, he was relating a typical conversation with a fantasy fan, and he said, the fan said, hey, Peyton, great game last week. Peyton said, yeah, but we lost. And the fantasy football fan said, but you threw five touchdowns, and that's all I need from you. So it's, it's almost a, it's a metagame. It floats on top of the real-world game, and for some people becomes really more fascinating than the game itself because they draw in, it's the connective tissue of all the different teams and everyone who is working to do the best for their team, but also paying attention to what the fantasy football managers might think of what they're doing. So here, I think for me, 
Fantasy football is very American both in both parts of the name. Fantasy, playful, guided drafts, the sense that anything could happen, the sense that you are in charge and without the kind of money or the kind of responsibility that a real manager of a team here, okay, now we're back to Ted Lasso, Avery, that without, without the kind of money or responsibility that a real manager would have, you can actually live this out. Live your fantasy. And then football in terms of all that football connotes, American football, the NFL, the mass media, American culture, even if you don't really watch football or pay attention to it, chances are you're probably going to be invited to a Super Bowl party or somebody's probably going to ask you if you say you come from Southern California, they're going to say, oh, okay, what team? You know, who's your team? And you'll have to say, oh, I'm, I'm you know, a Chargers fan or I'm a, uh, an Oakland Athletics fan or, or whoever it is that you're interested in. So it was a really fascinating deep dive. What do you think? Would you play? <laughs> I would have to have several orientation meetings to understand this game, first of all. Oh, yeah. Um, since I think this is my first conversation ever about fantasy football, it's weird that this fantasy of it's 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 basically an american dream it's not the american dream but it is an american dream where you get to basically have your dream team and yeah everything is still up to chance and up to fate and whatever i don't i don't know what i think about this yet <laughs> I know. It's, it's just a fascinating culture, really. Yeah. Oh, I also found this really interesting. I asked him about whether he felt a sense of ownership. And he said that in the fantasy football community, they actually move away from that word because as fantasy football managers, as participants, they tend to draft black players. And so that word has a charge that they are not wanting to have in their community. So I found that very interesting. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, that's very impressive that they have yeah. that kind of awareness in the community regarding those social politics, I suppose. Oh, the, the fact that it's also so much math as well and counting and record keeping, it kind of reminds me of a very complicated game of bingo plus stocks. Like if you if you put yes. the stock market into a massive game of bingo, that's what this would be. Yeah. And as we all know, buying and selling stocks is also known as playing the stock market, playing the market. And going back to your Puritan divide, at the very beginning of what we were talking about and this idea that capitalism thrives on work and it does not thrive on play, the idea that one of the most fundamentally work things or capitalist things that you can do is buy and sell stocks and yet we call it playing the market, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, and because people who are very into stocks and such, they take it very seriously. 
and they choose their best teams, basically. They choose all the best players that they want to have on their own team, and yet so much of their circumstantial results are going to be caused by a huge number of outside factors outside of their own control as well. And it's and there's also don't they call it game theory in economics as well? Yes, they do. Yeah. Fascinating. I know all these words that the Puritans would probably not want woven into American culture, you know, game theory and and playing the market and all these things. And even with the attitudes toward play that, you know, the West used to be founded on, it's it's such a it's such a contrast that play has been seen as so tempting, right? That word again of it's tempting you to stop the productivity, and the productivity is what is best. However, American culture, I mean, if you look at the culture of football and fantasy football, that's a huge part of what makes a lot of Americans happy. Oh, absolutely. And it shows up in sports, it shows up in gambling, it shows up in all kinds of places. Avery, think about a movie or any story about the Wild West that did not have poker in it, for crying out loud. You know, poker is so intertwined with this story of moving west and trying to find new spaces and I'm thinking of like the uh, the the song Oklahoma from the musical Oklahoma, right? Plenty of space to swing a rope, plenty of heart, and plenty of hope. I know it's a very silly song, and it absolutely discounts the presence of native peoples in these regions. But the idea that poker as a game was so important in how people socialized in those boom towns. And I think maybe it's a, a good time to talk about how we know about play and how play persists and how it's communicated. I, I want to, to begin this section, I, I want to give a shout out to the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, which collects artifacts from all periods of play and tracks history through toys and games, has a phenomenal collection. So if you're ever in Rochester, also publishes a journal of play. So it's an amazing institution, both academically and as a museum itself. So you can look at how these archives created. Some things I think are just passed down from kid to kid. Do you remember when you were a kid learning how to play Marco Polo in a pool? Yeah. Yep, me too. Okay, this may be a generational thing, but did your generation have that game called MASH where you drew My older sister taught it to me. There you go. Well, what did this thing stand for again? Mansion, apartment, shack, and house. Shack? I know. It's, it's interesting. And you chose a car. You chose, I think you chose a car and a job and someone that you kind of liked. And then MASH was supposed to create your destiny. (laughs) 
I know. This, I, I know, I know, like, the strangest game ever, right? Yeah, but it's strange that we would play it, like, multiple times. Like, it's not like we... Like, yes! Yeah, it was, like, every so often, too, and you would get something new every time. That's so weird. Yeah, and back in the day of the progressive movement and the height of immigration, they also had places like Jane Addams' Whole House or other settlement houses, where they would, their primary function was to teach English to newcomers to the United States. And they also started communicating a sense of American identity. So Avery, this was the value back then, right? They, and this was the way that the progressive movement thought that the so-called melting pot could happen. That if we had a common language and a common identity, then we could go further. And so I know now I think we would probably look back at this and say, okay, but what erasure is going to happen because of this? But that was, that was the time. And they did this through games and plays and songs. There are all kinds of records of the things that they did, including children's theater. And so... If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. What better way to get small kids to learn English than giving them a script and teaching them most likely by rote, here's your line, repeat your line, here's what your line means, here's the other character, here's what you're talking about. And a lot of these early children's theater plays had to do with, they were similar to sort of Grimm's fairy tales. What did it mean to be a good kid? Stay on the path. Don't wander from the path. Don't trust people who you don't know. And always, always remember that family is of utmost importance and that you are supposed to be good and kind and helpful. And that was layered with American identity. I'm very glad that I went to a variety of educational environments growing up. I did have American school during the daytime, and then I had Chinese school during the afternoon evenings afterwards on the weekdays. And then in the weekends, we would go to like Vietnamese school or something to practice to learn Vietnamese and Buddhism and such. And I was exposed to a lot of different games throughout. Uh, one of the play times that we would have during Chinese school would involve Chinese yo-yo. Sometimes we'd play in the courtyard at the end of class. Um, it, you basically have two s sticks that are kind of like drumsticks, but they're attached by a string on the end. And then you balance a, imagine an American yo-yo, but times that by like five times the size. And then you basically have to use the, st the string on a stick, the sticks on a string <laughs> to make the yo-yo go and do stuff. I'm doing the hand motions to try to explain it, but... It was very fun, and I, it was very. It felt very fortunate to have those memories for me growing up, so that I could distinguish the differences or similarities between being an American and being an Asian person. Even though I was born in America, I got to almost feel more Asian just by, you know, playing um, martial arts or um, with lion dance or 
with the yo-yo or with like Chinese plays growing up and then do the whole same thing over again with the Vietnamese games and the Vietnamese language and all of those um, cultural practices as well. And I definitely, I'm, I'm just, I, I feel like I'd be a lot less grateful for kind of intercultural exploratory experiences. Avery, you had a favorite museum when you were a kid, didn't you? Yeah, it was the La Habra Children's Museum. I remember whenever I would beg to go there, I wouldn't even... I didn't even remember like the children's museum parts because I, w- I w- couldn't even pronounce that those two words. I would just be like, Labra, I want to go to Labra. And my sister had, like taught me how to pronounce it without, with the silent H because it's technically Spanish or whatever. But I was obsessed with this place because they had very fun and tactile things to play with and to explore and learn about. They had a fake tree with, it's almost like you're in a tree house, but it's still indoors and it's not a real tree house. Um, but, and they also had this, I don't know what it was about fake grocery stores for me, but they really just did the job. (laughs) For example, the Discovery Cube in Santa Ana also had this grocery exhibit as well back in the day, and you had your own shopping cart, and you could check out these fake foods, and you got to scan them, and and at the Discovery Center specifically, they were very focused on um, sustainability and reusability rather than um, disposable items, and they had a whole dairy section and a whole candy section, fruits and veggies and produce section. So it was simultaneously fun, but also educational because they're like, make sure that you get your whole food pyramid, you know, go to every section in the store. And but also you have a budget or whatever, or maybe you don't have a budget. I, I did not have a budget. I would just buy everything. And that was fun, too, because then I could buy whatever I wanted without thinking about the budget. But yeah, I don't know what it is about fake grocery stores, but Dang, I I honestly love to go to a fake grocery store right now. I mean, I think Omega Mart uh, by Meow Wolf in Las Vegas is a... I was um, just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a little bit about that. So maybe that place is actually my dream come true. So maybe uh, that's my next stop. <laughs> maybe. I, I would love to go check it out. I think there are three Meow Wolf sites... And I would love to go and check them out and compare them. And I bet they are a just an absolute research study on play, each and every one of them. So, Drew, backing up to some concluding questions here. How do we cohere or how do we diverge? And what does mm. play have to do with both of these? Out of all of this, what does this tell you about who we are when we play in America? I think that one of the things at play here, ha ha ha, pun intended. One of the things at play here is the idea of excess and waste that we as Americans have the ability to spend money or buy extra food or spend time, extra time doing things. We are in many ways a rich country, or at least we say we are. At least that's the story that we tell ourselves. These ideas about excess and waste and how they define the wealth and the power of a country or a society come from Joseph Roach in his book, Cities of the Dead. Great book. We have no requirement to fetch water daily. We, except for farmers, we have no requirement to engage in animal husbandry or slaughter or things like that. 
We have no daily requirement, the vast majority of us, to build chairs or tables, do any kind of carpentry, and really not much of a requirement to sew. And so most of the things that we can do are part of leisure time. We are in many ways a country of leisure and leisure and play in our very first episode, we didn't really put two, those two ideas together, but that's, that's sort of an interesting word pairing too. And then we have pop culture that I think a lot of people cohere around. So things like superheroes, like the MCU, brought people together across lines of class or race or gender in many ways. I'm not saying this is perfect, but I think in many ways those things brought people together more than life kind of as lived as lived every day. Star Wars, of course. I mean, I, I could say who doesn't love Star Wars, but then we'll get people saying I don't love Star Wars. But Star Wars reaches across those boundaries as well. But there are fandoms, there are other sites of divergence, there are regional sites, so people have teams like uh, Los Angeles's Drew League in basketball, which I just found out. So this is a league that was started a few decades ago where people who are looking to become professional can come and play, this is basketball, come and play with folks who are pros who also come and just play with other folks just because the Drew League is different than the Pro League. Uh, schools, I mean the idea that we belong to schools. One of the first things that I always get asked when I say I'm a professor is where do you teach? And then Chapman has kind of a charge to it. I think a lot of people ask, where did you go to school? Or I, I've heard a lot of people saying, where did you go to high school? Just to get an idea of where this person was planted when they were a kid. And also some of these are income-based. So things like golf or things like yachting. They are divergent because you have to have the money in order to sort of engage in one of these playful undertakings. And then also, I think some of them are background-based. I'm thinking of lowrider culture and how that is very much associated with Chicano culture or things like the Jewish hora dance, the circle dance, that if you walked into a celebration after a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah or a wedding, I would venture to say that everyone there who is of the faith would know exactly what was going to happen when Haba Nagila started playing, right? And anyone who is sort of an outsider to the faith would have to look and see what this play existed Anyone who was outside the faith, outside the culture, would have to look and see how this play was set up in order to become part of the circle dance. So yes, it does help us cohere. It does give us an understanding, for better or worse, of what does it mean to be part of this country. It also gives us an understanding of, I am a Korean American. I am a Chicano. 
I am a Muslim American with roots in Pakistan. You know, all these different ways that we have two identities existing simultaneously. And I think that we talked a lot about this without sort of examining it or being critical about it, but I think that's where you might go in your wrap up here, Avery, so I will, I'll leave that to you. But I found this final quote, which I kind of love, and this just said it all to me. And this is by Jacques Barzun. Jacques Barzun said, whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball, the rules and realities of the game, and do it by watching first some high school or small town teams. There you go, Avery. Over to you. That's a really fantastic quote. Thank you so much. I was reminded when you talked about fandoms and such, some of my favorite cartoons growing up were Teen Titans and Sailor Moon and Pokemon, all of which originated from, you know, Japan. But I think one of my favorite American cartoons growing up was Tom and Jerry. There was just something about the lack of dialogue, yet the completely action-filled, physically comedic sense of that show that cracked me up and just kept me coming back as a kid. Um, but that's not to say, of course, that... I mean, but also, I'm also very glad that I had Teen Titans and Sailor Moon and Pokemon as well, because those also really shaped me growing up, too. And for me, my experience of being American growing up has been very, like, me not caring much about it, just because I was much more proud of being Vietnamese or Chinese American, because I kind of saw being American as like, oh, they, they only speak one language, you know, they play silly games, whereas my play, I don't know, I get to speak multiple languages and, and play multiple games in different languages. I'm cool and cultured and I'm special. And I think I just really felt like the American flag didn't really represent me because I saw so many iterations of it representing other people in other specific ways that didn't really necessarily match with how I felt on the inside. Um, but I, my dad would always try to get us to go to like parades for New Year's and 4th of July and stuff because he was always a very let's engage with the community kind of person. And so in honor of his spirit, he's alive. Oh my God. I meant in honor of his energy, this energy of, you know, exploring local communities. When I moved to Champaign-Urbana in Illinois, um, this summer, I decided to attend their 4th of July parade, and it was very interactive, there was lots of waving, there was so much waving from the, the float people that you just, like, feel compelled to wave back. It's just a very human thing, you just staring at them waving at you and you not waving back just feels wrong. But anyway, there was definitely a ton of the symbols and imagery that we've already discussed of, like, the American flag and, like, the matching uniforms and colors. And there were even, like, hay bales on most of the floats for people to sit on. And it was just, like, very family-oriented. A lot of parents and children and, and, and both the audience and the people in the parade themselves. Um, 
and this was just me and Xavier attending and we just like sat on the grass and some shade just like watching and waving as they went by and blew bubbles at us and then afterwards we stopped by Walgreens for some other stuff and the lady employee she <laughs> provided commentary as we shared our experience I was like telling her what we saw and stuff and she was like very disappointed I told her like there it was just kind of meh and she was like yeah I know back in my day there used to be marching bands and horses and tractors and buggies and I was like yeah no there weren't any of that she was like what she was incredulous I will never forget the way that she looked at us with just wide eyes and just completely taken aback that like these staples that they had had since her childhood of growing up here just were not there I wasn't disappointed before. I was just very neutral before. But after her reaction, I was a lot more disappointed that there were not any marching bands or horses or tractors or buggies at the parade. Um, but, you know, it's just a parade. And if you're disappointed in the parade that you're served, it just means that you have the opportunity to make your own parade. There's always somewhere to visit where you can rejuvenate your sense of play for yourself again. And maybe that's all you can do sometimes. I love your idea of creating your own parade. And if you want a marching band in that parade, put a marching band in that parade. If you want a float, put a float. If you want dancers, put dancers. And I think that that is also a way of being critical, but also being transformational and taking power and making that power your own through the way that you curate your own play and the way that you structure your parade. That was very well put. Thanks, Avery. Well, we'll see you next time.